The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're, uh, we're still looking at uh, the sheet entitled Atonement Part 2. Did you all bring that? If not, there's about 30 of them in the back. Uh, it's the exact same sheet we were working on last week. I made another 30 tonight in case you might need some, which looks like it would cover you know, what our needs are. We've been studying the Atonement of Christ last week. I think we had, uh, you know, I had a wonderful time just looking at uh, the true uh, teaching, the doctrine of the Atonement, and then looking at some of the strange theories that the devil has sown in the church um, or in those who are claiming to be Christians over the years uh, false understandings of the, um, the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Um, on page 5, uh, I gave you Roger Nicole's um, fourfold test of theories of the atonement. Uh, that's on page 5 of your outline. Um, he was talking about uh, the different views that there have been. There have been at least five or six major or you know views. We looked at four of them. There are others, but we looked at the most important ones. There are variations on some of these strange doctrines. But uh, Roger Nicole came up with this fourfold test of the theories of the atonement. The first is, how does this view account for the salvation of Old Testament saints? We have to account for that. We have to try to understand how God made provision for the salvation of Old Testament sinners. Um, I know it says saints there, and they're both. They're both sinners and saints. But how does God atone for their sins? What about David and Bathsheba? You know, how do we how do we account for God saying through the prophet Nathan, "You shall not die. God has taken away your sin." How does that work? Well, the atonement must answer that question. How can it be that a holy God can simply pass over the the uh, the blood guilt and adultery of David? And just as an example, it's not just that one sin, but there's all kinds of sins. Uh, David himself said in one psalm, my, my sins are as numerous as the hairs of my head. That wasn't his only sin. Uh, all of us sin in many ways, like it says in the book of James. So, how does this view account for the salvation of the Old Testament saints? Secondly, how does this view connect with Old Testament sacrifices? So many of these views that we looked at last time has really, have really no explanation whatsoever of the significance of animal sacrifices. Really makes no sense at all. But if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then you see a completion there, don't you? I had an opportunity this week to witness uh, to a man at uh, Duke campus, and we were talking about uh, uh, we were talking about animal sacrifice and the lessons of the animal sacrificial system. This man was from Italy, and he has a Catholic uh, background. And so I thought, I mean, and he, I asked, was he a regular tender? So I needed to know if he, and sure enough, he was. And so he's used to the whole sacrificial kind of approach of the mass. And so therefore, I really thought an explanation of the sacrificial system would be a good way to explain the gospel. He really had no idea how the death of Jesus Christ benefited him or anyone at all today whatsoever. And so, therefore, I, I thought that the sacrificial system was a very good way of explaining what exactly was happening at the cross. And I've explained that to you folks many times before, so I won't go through that. Uh, but these other strange views really have no explanation, and frequently they greatly disparage the Old Testament, as though it's something that we just don't even need to read anymore. We don't. That was just something they did back then. 
Uh, thirdly, how does this or does this view provide a proper view of the divine attributes, especially God's love and justice and holiness? These things are in a, in a significant way put on display at the cross of Jesus Christ in the orthodox or accurate or biblically accurate view of the atonement. We see God's love, don't we? We see his justice and his holiness. We see these things if you understand substitutionary atonement or what they call penal substitution. A penalty was paid by a substitute. Guilt was transferred in some mysterious way. Jesus taking our guilt on himself and suffering justly under the wrath of God, extinguishing the wrath of God, taking within himself the penalty due for our sins. He, meanwhile, giving us his righteousness, again, in some kind of a mysterious uh, transfer or what we call imputed righteousness. This is our salvation. This is the gospel we preach. But these other views really have no explanation of the justice or the holiness or love of God. Uh, And we saw that last time. And then uh, there are just these key filtering texts that you just have to look at. Isaiah 53 and Matthew 20 and all that. They're listed on page five. So we went through that. And we talked about these various views. Which one's your favorite? Which one do you like the best? Ransom to Satan, the example, example, the governmental view. It's amazing what the devil has done to try to sow confusion about this central aspect of our faith. Right. And so we went through and we saw how each one of them failed. And one of the interesting things we, we saw was, for example, the moral influence theory or the example theory, which are very similar. Uh, both of them are founded on a central idea, namely that God doesn't have any problem with us. He loves us. He would accept us immediately. There's no problem on God's side. The problem's with us. We're messed up. And we don't love God and we don't, we, don't tr- we don't think about God the way we should. and We don't treat each other the way we should. So we need to be fixed. Is that true? Well, of course it's true, but it's not the whole truth. And as we said before, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. And so when you have something saying this is it and that's not all there is, then we've got a major problem. And we saw that. We saw that the cross of Jesus Christ was meant to have an influence on us. It was meant to give us an example. No question about that, but that's not all. There needed to be something happening on God's side, and there is. Now, remember how we saw that the divine attributes were actually very much not on display with these. If Jesus did not mysteriously receive, in some sense, our guilt on himself in suffering, then it's really an example of God's great injustice. Jesus, the most, the only really pure and innocent man that's ever lived, suffering like this. What does that show us about God? It's actually an act of great injustice, isn't it? And so uh, we saw how actually the example theory is not a good example. It's an example of great injustice. And on Jesus' part, it's not even an example of great love. We saw it was an example of great insanity. You remember that? Because nothing's really achieved. Jesus is displaying or demonstrating love like the neighbor that runs into the burning house to rescue nobody. All right, it's not an example that we want to follow. It's the kind of thing where for years you'd be saying, what was the matter with that person? And and the same thing. So we have major problems. That uh, is what we talked about last time. We got right to the end on page eight uh, and got to this little question, which I did not even mention last time. And that's where we're beginning tonight. Did Christ descend to hell? Now, you may want to say, how does this even come up? Well, uh, it comes up in a kind of a, a chronological chronological treatment of the life of Christ, which you find most especially displayed in the Apostles' Creed. 
If you look at the Apostles' Creed, uh, it's following, it seems, chronologically, the events, the significant events of Christ's life. It's not the only thing in the Apostles' Creed, but once we get to the second person in the Trinity and we're going through, we just are following basically a chronological, um, hitting the chronological point, high points of Jesus' life. So look on page 8 and there's the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator. We're not using this one. It's actually at the back. Sorry. There should be some more in the back. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived uh, of the Holy uh, Spirit, uh, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Well, that's the Apostles' Creed. I said it uh, back and forth between that one and the Nicene Creed as I was growing up as a Catholic. This is one of the two great creeds that Christians have recited. Now, if you look at the section on Christ and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and then there's a colon, who was conceived born, suffered, crucified, died, buried, descended, right? Um, Rose from the dead, ascended, sits, will come back. It's purely chronological. Do you see that? So what this means is that after Jesus was buried in the Apostles' Creed, he descends to hell. That's what we're talking about tonight. Okay, did did he do that? Well, you could say, well, sure, it says it right there in the Creed. Well, let's let's hang on a second, okay? Um, this is a creed, okay? This is a, a, a body of doctrines that the, that the church put together to try to explain what it is we believe as Christians. This is not inspired scripture, friends. You understand that now, okay? So if it's in the creed, that doesn't mean it's necessarily true. It ought to be, okay? If you're going to put something in a creed, it better be true, all right? And that's one of my big problems. This thing should never have been in the creed. I think the things you're going to put in a, in a 20 line statement of the Christian faith had better be absolutely agreed on by everybody. No ifs, ands, or buts, right? Something you're going to call the Apostles' Creed. There's got to be no debate. Well, let me tell you, there's major debates about that line. And so I don't think it should ever have been included. And it's interesting to understand why it was included there. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. But there's the creed. He descended into hell. Now, what's the origin of this phrase, he descended into hell? Well, first thing you need to know is that it is early. It's been around for a while, but it is not in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed itself was developed over about five and a half centuries from 200 to 750 uh, A.D. So the church is putting this together and there are ancient documents that show various versions of this and church historians who specialize in this kind of thing collect them and they know where they are. The Vatican has a lot of them and they can date them and they know uh, when they had it and they have they can do kind of text studies of these ancient documents and find out really a history of development of the Apostles' Creed. And the earliest versions did not have this line. Okay. So that calls into great, great suspicion whether it really was an apostolic doctrine. Did they teach it? And so uh, it, it wasn't in the earliest version. Now, Philip Schaff is one of these historians, these church historians, and he's got a chart and he shows when the phrase crept in. One of two versions from this man Rufinus in AD 390 uh, shows it, but then it doesn't show up again until 650. So you got these, these two documents and it's got he descended to Hades. Literally, it says Hades. And then you're not going to see it again until 650, and then it starts becoming in all the Apostles' Creeds after that. 
Now realize before the advent of the printing press, what you've got is you've got a bunch of monks who are sitting at desks and they've got a manuscript and they're just copying by rote what they've got. And so that there's a great proliferation of documents after a certain age that all say he descended to hell is no great proof uh, that it was absolutely true because they're all work. They're just cranking out copies of the same thing. And if you have one one original that says it, then the fact that you have a thousand copies after that really doesn't prove anything. What you want to look at is how the older ones, uh, what they said. So basically the uh, statement, page nine, top of page nine, the outline, until 650, no version of the creed included this phrase with the intention of saying that Christ descended into hell. Rather simply, it, it's, it seems that they're trying to say he died physically. Hades was syn- synonymous for physical death. A good example of this is in Matthew 16 when it says, Jesus says, um, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. A lot of times in the KJV and others that'll come across as the gates of hell. All right. Well, when I think of hell, I think of the eternal place of the damned, you know, like the lake of fire and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the, the Greek word is actually Hades. And so what he's saying is the power of death. Some people link that to Satan's kingdom, etc. I have that mentality. Um, but death and Satan will not stop my building of the church. That's what I think he's saying there. But the KJV sometimes translates Hades with the word hell. Well, that's what this word is, Hades. It's in, in these early early translations. It's very uh, questionable whether the early, even the earliest versions were trying to say that Jesus descended into some netherworld region. But uh, that really until 650, it's not even in there except in two documents and all the others didn't have it. Therefore, as I said a moment ago, it's very doubtful that this is even an apostolic doctrine. Later, however, it was inserted after another phrase, and buried. Uh, so you, if you look back at the creed there, it says... He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And if you're going to follow chronological, you know, it's all chronological as I showed you, then you're saying, okay, after he was buried, something happened to him. And that's where it creeps in. And I would guarantee most people who read the creed think that's what happened. You read it and you say, okay, after he's buried, he took a trip. He went somewhere and did something. And they're intrigued by it. They want to find out what he did, why he went there. Was he suffering? Was he preaching? Was he rescuing some people that are incarcerated? What is he doing? And their, their minds are running, running wild and they're trying to think of what he would do after he was buried but before he was raised. And that's what we're zeroing in on. But I'm just saying early on, I just don't think, I think they were just trying to say he died. He physically died. Okay, again, like Hebrew, the, the word Sheol, is the, it's the realm of the dead. He, he died. That's what I think that the creed was trying to say. All right, well, obviously, um, uh, what the creed said is nowhere near as important as what Scripture says. The question is, does this doctrine have any scriptural uh, support? Now, there are some possible uh, ver- uh, versions um, of or biblical support of this, five in particular that Grudem uh, zeroes in on. Uh, the first is in Acts 2.27. Uh, there it says, uh, because, this is in the KJV, Thou wilt not leave uh, my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's a quote of Psalm 16. The NIV gives us um, this, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let the whole, your holy one see decay. The ESV tries uh, to be a little more literalistic on the Greek. It says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Now, here we get this issue of the word Hades. Hades in the Greek represents the grave, not the place of torment for sins. Peter is quoting Psalm 16, representing Christ's triumph over the grave and death, not that he descended to hell. So this is actually pretty weak support uh, for it. And there it says, you will not leave my soul in the grave. Basically, that Jesus wasn't going to stay dead. 
it, the confusion comes when you get every time that Hades is used, the King James translates it hell. And, and that's troublesome. That lead, kind of leads or lends strength to this whole apostolic creed's statement. Uh, secondly, we've got Romans 10, 6 and 7. Uh, there in Romans 10, 7, ESV gives us, who will descend into the abyss, that's a different word this time, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. The word abyss here represents some unreachable place. It's not representing hell. Paul here, as you remember, I just preached through this in Romans 10, is saying salvation is not by works. It's not by some great achievement. You don't have to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down. You don't have to go down into the abyss to bring him up. It's something that is completed and presented to you simply for, for you to believe. There's no great achievement that you have to achieve. You just have to believe a completed work that's being preached to you now. You just have to have to hear the word, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth you're saved. You don't have to do accomplish great things like going finding some rare lotus flower on the top of some Himalayan mountain. You don't have to do some strange or extraordinary deed to save your soul. It's completed for you and it's given to you. It's just salvation by faith. And that's what it's saying there. It's not saying that he descended to uh, into uh, hell. Another one is Ephesians 4, 9 and 10. This is the section on spiritual gifts. And there um, it's talking about how Christ, uh, when he ascended, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. Um, that's, that's what it's getting there. So Ephesians 4, 9, it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? <laughs> he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So here is this kind of three-tier view. You've got the heavens, the earth, and then beneath the earth. And down beneath the earth, that's where Hades is, that's where hell is. And it's saying, they think, in Ephesians 4, 9, that he descended to the lower regions of the earth. But actually, it doesn't really read that way. What it means is that he descended to earth, to the lower parts, that is the earth. He came down here, and in so doing, he gave gifts to the human race. That's what I think it's talking about. So look at Ephesians 4. You know, see, it's really pretty shaky to say that he descended to the lower portions of the earth there. The simpler way is saying he uh, descended from heaven to earth, and in so doing, he was giving gifts. All right, those are not the heavyweight verses. Let's get to the real ones, all right? All right, just clearing the table. Let's get to the Peter verses. And by the way, okay, before we look at Peter, all right, Peter says this. I'll just read it and then make a comment. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Now, if, I know you've read that many times before, but it's like every phrase brings a new big surprise. And, and you're reading it, it's like, what is he talking about? And, and it's, it, there's been so much debate and discussion about this verse. I'll tell you this, whatever interpretation I give you right here, it's not going to finally answer all of your thoughts about what in the world Peter was talking about, which means that he qualifies as having written here a difficult verse, Okay. <laughs> Now, it's interesting because in 2 Peter, he's talking about Paul's writings. And there he says, our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave you. He writes some things that are difficult to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. You want to say, well, Peter, who are you to talk? You gave us 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Could you tell us what it means? 
So the fact of the matter is scripture sometimes is difficult to understand. And this is a difficult passage. Everybody says it. You know, you read it and you say, I, what could it mean? What is it talking about? Well, the key question for our study here tonight is, does this refer to Christ preaching in hell? Now, that is one of the main things that is offered to us that Jesus did when he descended to hell. He went down and preached to people or spirits, at least. And and there's all kinds of theories on what the preaching entailed. But that's what they say. And they get it from first Peter. Now, there's some questions, though, that come, don't don't they? Even if you accept that scheme. First of all, why did Christ only preach to such a limited audience? Namely, those who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. It's kind of like you almost imagine like Dante's Inferno. He's going through the circles and he's trying to find the section where these folks are being kept. And and he goes and there they are. This is the section where those who disobeyed in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. um, There they are. And he preaches something to them. What does he preach to them? And why only to them? Why does he pass by all the others? Why does he pass by the Jews that died out in the wilderness instead of entering the promised land? Why, why does he pass by those that suffered in the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does he pass by all these others? Why these folks in particular, these disobedient <laughs> spirits in prison uh, from the days of Noah? Doesn't Maybe you didn't have that question, but at least it's in my mind. Why did he preach to such a narrow audience? Why not to all the souls in hell? Also, did this preaching imply some kind of opportunity for repentance after death? That's a pretty significant question, isn't it? What's he preaching to them? Uh, are they, are they going to have a, a chance to repent? Is there going to be an altar call in Hades? A chance to, to do it again? Well, let me tell you, if so, boy, does that fly in the face of the entire structure of understanding we have of death and after that judgment. And even worse, in Luke 16, where the rich man and Lazarus, that whole thing, remember? And the rich man's in torment. You remember that story? And then uh, Lazarus is up, it says, in Abraham's bosom. That's the way that Jesus explains it. And so here's, here's the rich man and he calls up to Abraham and, and he wants Lazarus to come down and dip his finger in some water and cool his tongue because he's in torment. You remember that? And it's just a very striking story. And you just get the picture of the torment of those in hell. And it's amazing how this man who was such a connoisseur of the finest things in life a wealthy man who could only eat the best food and drink the best wine, his desires are reduced at that point to a very simple thing. He wants somebody to stick his finger in some water and put it on his tongue. That's all he wants at that point. A horrible, horrible uh, picture in our mind. But do you remember how Abraham, what Abraham said? First of all, he said, now remember that in your life you had your good things and Lazarus, he had nothing. I mean, he sat by your gate every day. You never gave him a thing. So you remember that. And second of all, there's a problem. Uh, you remember what the problem is? There's a great chasm and no one can pass from one side to the other. Well, that implies a permanence to each of those positions. Those that are in hell, they stay in hell. And those that are in heaven, they'll be there forever. And there's no passing one to another. So that would, in my mind, cut off any possibility of post-death preaching or post-death repentance and a changing of your state from one place to the other. Furthermore, if even if we accepted that, if you say, well, that's just metaphor or it's a parable or something like that, and you dismissed it, still you have major problems. Is this the understanding you have of, of multiple opportunities, even those after death? You'd have, to rem- you'd have to think what kind of person re- would refuse a gospel presentation while they're in torment. Um, no, we're justified by faith, and at that point there's no opportunity for faith. They've seen. They know. 
and there's no chance for faith. So we have a problem there. Also, this idea of preaching in hell does not really fit the context of Peter. Now, Peter is writing, First Peter, to suffering Christians who are trying to stand up under difficult circumstances like non-Christian masters and non-Christian husbands and non-Christian governors and authorities. And they're suffering and Peter's urging them to live boldly for Christ and to preach boldly even if people never accept. And therefore, I, I think what he's, you know, this idea of, of Jesus dying, going to hell and preaching to the spirits doesn't help them at all. I mean, what is it an example of how does it help them? But I think the true interpretation is going to help them. We'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, some say that Christ was preaching, so to speak, to fallen angels because it says he went and preached to the spirits in prison the spirits in prison. Now, this idea has some strength to it in that in 2 Peter, it says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, uh, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, there's Tartarus, the pit. He sends them to the pit. And I think that what that is is probably a temporary holding place for certain demons. That's my interpretation of 2 Peter 2. And so he doesn't spare them, but he sends them there. Do you remember how the demoniac of the Gadarenes was terrified of Jesus? And he said, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? I think there are some demons that were tormented before the appointed time, just not sent to hell because there's no one in the lake of fire yet. I look on that as a judgment day, a final thing for the devil and his angels. But there is this place, Tartarus in the Greek, the pit, and he sent them there to suffer until judgment day and then they get to go in the lake of fire. So the demoniac of the Gadarenes was afraid that Jesus was going to send them there. Doesn't that show you the power of Jesus, by the way? They are terrified of Jesus, absolutely terrified. They're not fighting on equal level, not with Jesus. And so there's some great terror. And so some people say that when Jesus uh, descended to hell, he was preaching to fallen angels and he wasn't preaching for their repentance. No, not at all. He was just proclaiming his triumph over them. Basically a victor's cry. I have won, I have triumphed. That's, that's the idea. There's a proclamation of victory. That's all he's doing when he descended to hell. Uh, how, uh, in the world, Peter's, uh, readers would, or, or, you know, would understand that is difficult to see. Some say that Christ was proclaiming release to Old Testament saints, but that's not who Peter says that Christ was preaching to. That doesn't even fit the verse. Right? In other words, that he went down to get Old Testament saints like David and all that who are languishing in some holding place until Jesus could achieve their atonement. And once he had achieved their atonement, then he could bring them uh, out and they could be with him in paradise uh, or in heaven. And so he's got to get them out. The problem with that view is that that's not what the verse says. What does it say? He preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. That isn't looking good. You don't want that next to your name. I'm one of those spirits that disobeyed long ago in the days of... It doesn't seem like Old Testament saints, does it? So those, these are the various options. I don't believe any of them. What then does... What does the verse say? I don't know. So let's move on to the next part. I, I don't know what it says. Well, let me give you an interpretation that was first presented as a possibility by St. Augustine, although he didn't believe it. He didn't accept it. Uh, but I think it's good. And I think what it means is that it's referring to the, the preaching ministry of Noah. That Noah was the one doing, during the, doing the preaching. And that the spirit of Jesus was in him when he was preaching. That it's in the spirit that Christ helped Noah preach 
while the ark was being built. And therefore, Noah's having a horizontal ministry to persecutors who just don't see the significance of the warnings he's giving. And so that, that Jesus helped Noah in a time of persecution when the ark was being built, even, even though they never did repent. And so that actually does help Peter's hearers. Do you see that? Because they are facing a similar situation that Noah did, preaching a gospel of a coming judgment day, and the people aren't accepting it. Now, look. If, take your Bibles, if you have them, and look at 2 Peter, and I think you'll see some corroboration for that in 2 Peter. Peter tells us some, something about Noah that the Old Testament text doesn't. And it's amazing how the New Testament apostles give us insights into Old Testament stories. They tell us things that you do not find in reading Genesis. And it's a little detail about Noah. If you look at 2 Peter, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Let's start at verse 4. And the the basic lesson in verse 4 through through 9 is stated in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. That's that's the lesson of this section. Is that applicable to Peter's suffering hearers? Yes, it is. The Lord knows how to sustain you in a hard time. He's done it again and again. He knows how to get people through a difficult time. And at the same time, he knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. That's what he's getting at. But he gives us some examples. First, he talks about, like I said, these these fallen angels. Uh, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, the Greek word is Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. I just mentioned that a moment ago. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, and look what it calls Noah there. Do you see it? A preacher of righteousness and seven others. Now, I'm telling you, that's information you don't have from the Genesis account. In the Genesis account, he's just, he's a builder. <laughs> he's a builder and a gatherer of lots of food. All right. And he's getting his family ready. It doesn't seem like Noah has any horizontal ministry at all. He's just busy building that ark. But second Peter two gives us a glimpse, a little insight. And it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, one other thing I want to show you, look at first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. I'm going to read second Peter also. First Peter chapter one, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Do you see this phrase, Spirit of Christ? The Spirit of Christ was in whom, according to 1 Peter 1? Look at it carefully. What is it? He's in the prophets. The Spirit of Christ is in the prophets when they are writing prophecy about Christ. And now also the Holy Spirit... And it's the same. Spirit of Christ and Holy Spirit are the same. The Holy Spirit is in the evangelists who are preaching the gospel to you. So the the Spirit is the preacher. He uses human beings to do it, but the Spirit of Christ is in the prophet. Do you see that? Also look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
and verse um, 21. Uh, we'll go 20 and 21. Above all, 2 Peter 1, and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter actually speaks a lot about the Spirit's ministry in human preachers as they speak the Word of God, whether the Old Testament prophets or uh, you know the present-day evangelists who are coming by the Spirit in preaching. So what do I think is happening? And Look at 1 Peter 3 and let's look at the verse again. And, and there I think it will start to make a little more sense. For Christ died for sins... Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Just stop there. That's all he's saying. You can almost just end the sentence there. And I think the next thing he says, even though it's just a continuation of the, of the same paragraph, is a whole new idea. He's just ba- basically saying this is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead by the Spirit. That's the gospel. Oh, by the way, the Spirit also does other things too. That's, you see, there's almost like a disconnect right in the middle of the verse. And so the Spirit also, through whom, or through the Spirit, by whom, also He went. Who went? Well, Jesus did. Jesus went through the Spirit and preached. Who did He preach to? The spirits who disobeyed in the days of Noah. Okay? Well, um, they're in prison now. They're spirits now. Okay? What do I mean by spirits? They're disembodied. What's another word for that? Dead, thank you. All right, they're dead, okay? They died how? Well, water filled their lungs or they were crushed by a bunch of rocks that fell off of some cliff when the Lord was rending the surface of the earth. I don't know, but they died in the days of Noah because there was only eight people that survived and he says that. They all died, but they got preached to before they died, didn't they? And really, who was it that was preaching? It was Jesus preaching. Yes, Noah was the preacher of righteousness. He was, but it was Jesus in them, in him, sorry, preaching to them. How does that help Peter's audience? Tell me, how does that help Peter's audience? What are, what are they going through? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And there's judgment now. That's right. That's, oh, that's so true. So they're in a time of persecution. Their audience sure doesn't look like they're going to believe in Jesus but preach anyway, proclaim anyway, live for Christ anyway. Jesus is in you. And he says this, First Peter, he says it another place, uh, if you are suffering, look at, look at chapter 4, uh, verse 14. Um, third, well, let's go 12 to 14. First uh, Peter 4, 12 through 14. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do you see that? So in the middle of your suffering, they're giving you a hard time, heaping abuse. The spirit is going to be with you just like he was in the days of Noah. Just like Noah, as he was being insulted by his generation while he was building the ark, Christ was with Noah and Christ will be with you too. I think that's what he's saying. So where does that leave the descent to hell? Right out, as far as I'm concerned. It's gone. I don't think there's any good good evidence for it. This is the best verse on the descent to hell. And I don't think that's what it's saying. 
I think instead it was saying that the Spirit was preaching to Noah's contemporaries the way he is preaching now to your contemporaries through you. Okay? Where am I on the sheet? I have no idea. Uh, bottom of page 10. Did all that. All right. Bottom line, uh, page 11. Therefore, 1 Peter 3, 18-20 is no good evidence that Jesus descended to hell. That's all I'm getting at. It's no good evidence for that. If you don't buy my explanation of it, that's fine. But you must acknowledge at least that this is no good evidence because there's at least several other ways to understand 1 Peter 3. Okay? And even if you said it is teaching a descent to hell, then you have all the problems I've listed here you have to answer. Why only to those saints or those disobedient uh, spirits in the days of Noah, etc.? Okay? And then the final verse that people put forward, 1 Peter 4, 6, For this is the reason the gospel is preached, even those who are now dead, that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. I actually think Peter has a number of difficult verses. It's not just one or two. He has a number of things that are difficult to understand. This one, I think, is talking differently about, about saints, about saints who have died. And they, they had the gospel preached to them in their day, and they died. And so in one sense, they were judged. Human beings looked on them and they're dead. They're judged according to men in regard to the body, but they live according to God in regard to the spirit. That's all I think it's saying. I don't think it's saying here um, that there's some kind of second chance for people who died and then they get to hear the gospel and Jesus preached it to them. Okay. Well, those are the verses that support a descent to hell. Are there any verses that oppose a descent to hell? I think there are. For example... In Luke 23, 42 and 43, then he said, this is like Bible trivia night. You can tell me who the he is. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that doesn't absolutely preclude a descent to hell. You know, it could be that he descended to hell and then took the thief to paradise or the other way around or dropped the thief off in paradise before he went down to hell. But to me, I'm thinking he didn't ever descend to hell. I think he experienced hell on the cross. That's when he had hell. He had the wrath of God on the cross. And then he said, it is finished. And he's not, there's no more suffering. He's done. He's finished. And so, therefore, I think he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'll take you with me. You know, you know the way to the place where I'm going and I'll actually bring you there. What an incredible thing for the thief. And the thief is such a picture of grace. What, did, what? How is he saved except by faith? I mean, he didn't do anything. His hands and feet are nailed. He's got nowhere to go. He just believed. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Do you ever wonder how many people have been saved, have trusted in Christ because of that thief? Think about it. I mean, how many people have been encouraged, whether in the hospital deathbed thing or criminals on death row? So many people have been encouraged by the testimony, today you'll be with me in paradise. But I think it argues against a descent to hell. Um, also, as I alluded to a moment ago, John 19.30, when he, Jesus, had received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This statement implies no further suffering necessary and all the atoning work was completed. And then the third statement from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there's a sense there that he gives himself right uh, into the Father's hands. So those are some verses that would, I think, preclude or argue against a descent to hell. Yeah, go ahead. Um, about that one where he said, today you'll be in your paradise. Mm-hmm. Just, that today is to get to when the paradise would um, have to come back down to earth and die as a man. Jordan and that also contradicts just the fact that the first repentance was the first time that the disciples saw him. Is that question make sense? No. 
Not yet. Keep trying. <laughs> well, if, he went to, if he went to seven that first time, uh-huh. when he already saying he came back from paradise, he uh, talked to the disciples, and when he saw them, he was coming back from... Yeah, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so Jesus entered his body. That's what I consider resurrection to be. So, you know, low in the grave he lay. I mean, Jesus' spirit is not in his body. That's what death is. So if you had gone there on Saturday, in between the three days... His spirit's not in his body. So where is he? He's with the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's with, you know, but this man, this thief, he doesn't have his body either. His body's on the cross. So they're, they're, I don't mean to be disrespectful, disembodied spirits, they're in the presence of God. But Jesus comes back in some sense and enters his body and for 40 days he gives his disciples evidence that he has physically risen from the dead. Then he ascends to heaven and he'll come back in glory the next time. That's my understanding of what happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and some people think that his entering into the Holy of Holies in the book of Hebrews, he entered with his own blood. I, they, they say that he kind of did that as soon as he died. When he said, it is finished, he presented the blood spiritually to the Father, opened up the way of salvation. Remember the curtain in the temple? torn in two from top to bottom. I think what was happening physically on earth was representing what was happening spiritually in heaven. So Jesus kind of ascends spiritually, opens up a way to heaven for for the and you know the thief right behind him, you know, and enters in into the very presence of God now that Jesus' atoning work is finished. But he still has to be raised physically from the dead, which he does on the third day. That's the best understanding I can give of that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think so. The pouring out, yeah, the wages of sin is death, so he has to die. There has to be a separation of Jesus' spirit from his body, what we call death, right. through blood, the shedding of blood. Right, right. Yeah, we could we could say that. There's there's a completion, but but realize Jesus said even the night before he was crucified, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It's a done deal. It's like he's saying it's a done deal. But he still had to do it, and he did it. And so at that point, now he can say it is finished. Yeah, one more. Go ahead. So, I, so just to make to make sure you're so you're saying on the three days there was a there was more like a heavenly three days than a than a Hades three days. I'm saying it was not a Hades three days. I'm saying he he was dead, but he his spirit was in the presence of God. He was with the Father. He was with the Father. Now, I'll tell you this. Let me say a quick thing about the word paradise. A lot of theologians really camp on that word and say he wasn't in heaven, he was in paradise. And they make a distinction between paradise and heaven. Uh, and others even go so far as to make a distinction between Abraham's bosom in Jesus' story in Luke 16 and paradise. It's like they've got all these different places. It's almost mythological. And for me, I, I don't know. I, what I, I think is we're in the presence of God. Absence, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I have this sense of the immediacy of being in the presence of God. There's nothing to hinder it. Uh, and so we're in the presence of God. That's my understanding. Anything else? Oh, good. Sign of Jonah? That's literally what he says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fist, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But what I, the way I take that is that he 
considers his body to be part of himself and his body was in the grave and so when i say the heart of the earth i I don't say he's got to descend to some netherworld region i think he just needs to be in a tomb and so he was so he that body is significant to him we already talked about that in christology he is forever human and so he was human in heaven even without the body but he's the first fruit from the dead and so he's going to go back and get that body but not the body that he left behind he's going to get the glorified resurrection body and we'll talk about that in due time. But, you know, yeah, he is in the heart of the earth in that his body was there. But he is in the presence of God spiritually. Yeah, heart of the earth. That's good enough for me. I mean, it's a grave. He was in the grave. All right. So the real question that I asked at the beginning of this whole uh, thing is, should this have been included in the creed? I mean, think about what the creed is for. It's supposed to be, this is a synopsis of what we all believe. And many people do not believe this. And therefore, I would think you would strike it out. And so therefore, practically speaking, um, page, next page, page 12, personal note, <laughs> whenever the Apostles' Creed is read, I am silent when this statement is made. I cannot make this in good conscience. I don't believe it happened. Not in the chronological order. I mean, you could say, well, you descended to hell in some certain sense. But even then, the way I, as an English speaker, understand the word hell, he didn't. All right? He experienced or drank hell on the cross You could, in one sense, Calvin interpreted it this way. He descended to hell on the cross. The problem you have with that is the chronological presentation of the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell on the third day he rose. It's all chronological, so therefore you have some real problems. So for myself, and I commend this to you for your consideration, whenever the Apostles' Creed is read, I would suggest you ask yourself, can I really say this? Is this something I really believe? Any questions about the descent to hell? All right, let's go on to the next section. And that is, I'll give these out tonight, um, that is the extent of the atonement. So out of the frying pan and right into the fire. Here you go. Uh, If you could pass that out. All right. Okay. All right, so far in our study, just by way of review, uh, we have looked at a definition of the atonement. We've talked about that. Uh, the atonement is the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. We talked about the cause of the atonement, God's love and his justice, which are both demonstrated at the cross. We talked about the necessity of the atonement, uh, that it wasn't necessary at all in that we didn't deserve it, didn't have to be done. But once God committed himself to it, it was the way uh, that that he chose and therefore it was necessary we talked about the nature of the atonement christ's active obedience and his passive obedience his active obedience was his life under the law in which he perfectly obeyed everything god commanded him to do a passive obedience is when he accepted the things done to him he accepted the cup god gave him to drink and drank it so uh and it was very uh uh, active in that passive obedience he he walked up the hill and he get, yielded himself etc uh, now we get to this question of the extent of the atonement. Now, what do we mean by the extent of the atonement? Well, this is the question, the way that Grudem puts it for us. When Christ died on the cross, did he die, uh, sorry, did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those he knew would ultimately be saved? The elect. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the extent of the atonement. We are not going to solve this in eight minutes, but... Um, uh, <laughs> I wanted to at least give it to you. Please bring these next week. I'll make about 20 or 30 copies next week. Um, next week. No, I won't. Uh, I keep forgetting. I do remember that. Ne- <laughs> I, I do. 
I'm going to get in so much trouble here. Uh, next week, we expect to, I expect, we're expecting, aren't we? Yes, I expect to, to be uh, in the hospital. Uh, in, uh, we'll be in a room by then, not the recovery room. We'll be, yeah, you all come and cram in the room. and We'll do the extent of the atonement in the room. Will you mind? Would that be all right? All, so now I'm really in trouble, all 70 of you. Now, we'll, we'll pick this up in, in a couple of weeks. You'll have plenty of time to f- formulate any darts you may have to throw at me if you read these, this outline here. But, um, yeah, next week, uh, we'll, God willing, we'll be accepting our fifth child. So we're excited about that. So please pray for us. Um, so. But uh, let's talk about uh, just some basic things in the time we have left. Um, first of all, let's talk about the differences. There are basically two approaches to the extent of the atonement, what you'll call the reformed approach and then the non-reformed approach. Some people would give labels like Calvinistic approach versus the Arminian approach to the extent of the atonement. Uh, those labels are fine, but they frequently call, carry with them more baggage than I want to carry or the higher cost than I want to pay. Other people willingly embrace it, like John Piper says, I'm a seven-point Calvinist. If not an eight or nine, I don't know what he's at, what number he's at. He totally embraces these things, and that's wonderful, and I respect that. Um, but uh, Grudem chooses to use these terms, reformed and non-reformed. Now, the non-reformed approach to the extent of the atonement is... It begins with the concept that the gospel offer is uh, made repeatedly, openly to all people. And a good example of this is Revelation 22:17, which says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and uh, let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, by the way, I love, I love, Revelation 22:17, the beginning part. I just love it. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Isn't that powerful? The Holy Spirit is saying, come to Christ, and so is the Bride. Who's the Bride? The church. The church has a role to play in saying, come. Come to Christ. And so there's such a cooperation there between the Holy Spirit and the church. That fits into what we were learning about Peter, right? The Spirit is in the evangelist saying, come. As if God himself were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Isn't that beautiful? The Spirit and the bride say, come. Don't you see the beautiful consistency of the scripture? I mean, this is just a little line at the end of Revelation, but it's consistent with what we know. It is so beautiful. I love that about the Bible. But it says, the spirit and the bride say, come, come to Christ. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him him that is athirst or thirsty come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So here we get this phrase, whosoever will. And that's why I did KJV, because of that expression, whosoever. Now, when was the last time you used the word whosoever in a sentence? Okay, (laughs) that's a great word, though, isn't it? It gives a sense of a freedom and a wide, wide uh, invitation of grace. And so there's a number of hymns here. Whosoever meaneth me, that's one of them. I am happy today, and I'm not singing this, but anyway. I'm happy today, and the sun shines bright. The clouds have been rolled away. For the Savior said, whosoever will may come with him to stay, to stay. Whosoever, whosoever surely meaneth me, surely meaneth me, oh, surely meaneth me. Whosoever surely meaneth me, whosoever meaneth me. And my feeling is a Christian can sing that and say, praise God for it. Praise God that I have freedom. And, and frankly, as it says in John 6, anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. Anybody who comes to Christ, he will accept. Now, I think it's reasonable to ask who will come. And I think theologically, I do ask that question. Who is it that's going to up and come to Christ? And how does it happen? I do ask that question. 
But I do believe that anyone who comes to Christ, Jesus will accept them. Whosoever will does mean me. And then there's this whosoever will is another hymn. Whosoever heareth, shout, shout the sound. Spread the blessed tidings all the world around. Spread the joyful news wherever man is found. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will. Send the proclamation over vale and hill. Tis a loving father calls the wanderer home. Whosoever will may come. And I believe that those things are true. I think that that wide gospel uh, invitation can be made. But... What these folks are saying is, for that offer to be genuine, then Christ had to die for everybody. And therein I find a difference. I cannot say that, and others cannot say that, but they say there, there must be a payment behind it, or basically it's like, like the evangelist is writing a, um, writing a rubber check. You know, there's no, there's no account behind it. Uh, that's the way that they say. For Christ's blood must have paid uh, for the sins of every person to whom the gospel is offered, or the offer cannot be genuine. It can't be a real offer if there's nothing behind it, etc. Also, if the people whose sins Christ paid for are limited, then the free offer of the gospel is also limited. And the offer of the gospel cannot be made to all mankind without exception. Thus, an evangelist cannot say, Christ died for your sins. Simply repent and believe the good news. He actually doesn't know if Christ died for the sins of any person listening. Can't make that statement. That's the whole logic of the non-reformed approach. The reformed, on the other hand, uh, looks at it this way. Reformed people say that if Christ's blood atoned for the sins of every single person on the face of the earth, then they are truly atoned for and hell must be empty. This puts a great weight on the actual accomplishment of what Jesus' blood is worth. And that if his blood was shed for you and, and you suffer in hell then a great injustice has occurred. And the injustice is to Jesus. If you look at 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is, two descriptions, faithful and what? Just to forgive. Let's zero in on that. If I had a, here we go. If I had in 1 John 1, 9, if I had this word here, this expression, just to forgive, This word just, like justice, what does this phrase mean in 1 John 1, 9? What is it saying? Exactly, be unjust for God not to forgive. Why? I thought the justice of God was against us. I thought we were filthy sinners. I thought we had broken the commands of God. I thought even the careless words we've spoken have been written down. How could the justice of God now be for us? How could it be? What's the answer? How is it now that God's justice doesn't stand against us, condemning us, but now God's justice is in favor of us, basically commanding forgiveness on his part, really, just to forgive? How is that? Because his his judgment has been satisfied. Therefore, if anyone for whom Christ died ends up in hell, it is unjust. Do you see it? That's how the reformed person argues. Let me give you an analogy. Um, we'll, we'll finish. Have you ever caravan before, like two cars driving or three or whatever? I remember one time we were doing this, um, going, I was in college and some good friends were in the car behind us. And we went up to a toll booth and we paid for our toll and the car behind. All right? We just wanted to see the looks on their face. We were watching the rearview mirror and it's like, go on through, you're free. You know, it's free. Free to, was it free toll day? No tolls. They're not taking any tolls. No, they paid. Okay? Now here's the deal. If it's a dollar toll, let's say, and I give the toll operator $2, okay? When they accept the second dollar, they're under an obligation, aren't they? And what is the obligation? 
let the next car through. If they don't want to do any part of that, they don't have to. All right? They say, don't forget it. I'm not doing that. I'm not playing your games. You go. Every car pays their own way. All right? But sometimes they do it. They're playful in a good mood or whatever. They want to do that. But as soon as they accept that dollar, they're under a moral obligation. See what I'm saying? Suppose then in the second car, they charge the dollar. It's, un- it's unjust. They're really stealing frankly. They stole your dollar or their whatever. That's the problem that reformed people have with the idea that Jesus died for the sins of people who end up in hell. They have a hard time understanding in what sense then Jesus died for their sins. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And it just happened to be 7.30. So we will talk more about this in a couple of weeks. If you have any questions, uh, save them for a couple of weeks from now. Uh, We can talk some more about it or you can come up afterwards and we'll chat a little bit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned tonight. We thank you for the depths of the word of God. We thank you for, uh, above all, the atoning work of Christ. We thank you for this expression, which is written here on this whiteboard, just to forgive. Lord, I count on that every day when I confess my sins. I don't come arrogantly, but I do come with confidence and boldness into the throne room because I know that Jesus' blood has paid for my sin. And I have a confidence there to confess my sins because he will be faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I thank you for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would please work in us a deeper understanding of your word. Help us, O Lord, even though we may not see the practical applications of a consideration of the descent to hell or the extent of the atonement, Lord, we know that a city of truth is brick by brick being erected in our minds and souls through which we live our lives and serve you. And I pray, O Lord, that we would not despise that process, but learn and learn and learn so that we can be faithful ministers of your gospel in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.